Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Artists have never given up as much personal information as they do today. Too much information sometimes. We don't want our heroes to be life-size. The reason we admire them in the first place is because they seem to operate on a plane much higher than us. They've got a special talent that affects us not just emotionally, but occasionally spiritually. What then do we make of things when we hear our favorite artist is human and fallible like the rest of us and suffer from health problems? I've seen two reactions. One is disbelief that they're mortal. Don't they have some kind of superpowers that keep them free from sickness and disease? And we might have a hard time accepting that. The second reaction is that such challenges humanize them. You know, hey, they're like the rest of us. I can relate. Perhaps this knowledge intensifies a relationship with that person. And if the artist is open and honest about their condition, it can be inspiring. And maybe by talking about what they're facing, they can help other people with the same challenges and keep moving forward. This, I think, is the real value in the personal health information that they share. This is part two of a program featuring musicians who have had to deal with disease. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and let me assure you that the intent of these episodes is not about sharing gossip or gawking about a famous person's health issues. No secrets are being revealed here. No confidence is broken. In fact, many of the people that we're going to hear about have been very open with their health struggles. They appear both vulnerable and strong. They want to demystify their conditions, raise awareness, sometimes raise money, and always, I think, give hope to those who may be going through the same sorts of things. Take Billie Eilish, for example. She has been very upfront about living with Tourette's syndrome. This is a neurological condition that results in involuntary tics or movements. It all began when she was very young, lots of blinking and rapid clicks of her jaw, so it seemed like her teeth were chattering. A formal diagnosis came when she was 11. Many of the symptoms have gone away over the years, but if you sit with her long enough, you'll notice the tics. She'll wiggle her ear back and forth, click her jaw, raise her eyebrows, flex her arm, all involuntarily. Some people think she's being funny, but it's something she can't control. And interestingly, the tics never seem to happen when she's performing. Billy doesn't talk about her Tourette's that often, but when she does, she's very candid. She's spoken on camera to both David Letterman and Ellen DeGeneres about it. Billy says it can be exhausting, but it's something she has to live with, and if talking about it helps others, fantastic. Avril Levine has no trouble talking about her years-long battle with Lyme disease, something she probably picked up from a tick bite. Getting diagnosed was a big problem. The fatigue, the night sweats, the fevers, skin rashes, depression. Several doctors got it completely wrong. Oh, it's just chronic fatigue syndrome or stress. Finally, she saw a Lyme disease specialist who prescribed some serious antibiotics and she was in bed for five months. Today, she is much better and is putting her health experiences into the Avril Lavigne Foundation, which supports people not only with Lyme disease, but also serious illnesses and disabilities. It has been very successful since it was initiated in 2010. There's Mick Mars, guitarist with Motley Crue. When he was a teenager, he started to experience severe pain in his hips. When he was 19, he was diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis, a form of inflammatory arthritis which affects the spine and pelvis. The condition has made it very difficult to move. The pain can be tremendous, and he became addicted to painkillers. 
Mick needed hip replacement surgery in 2004. He stopped playing guitar for over two years, and over the decades, his lower spine froze up and seized completely. This caused such severe scoliosis in his back that he's now three inches shorter than he was when he was in high school. Things have also spread to his brainstem, which means he can't move his head very well. He can't drive anymore, but despite all this, he refuses to give up. Same thing with Imagine Dragon singer Dan Reynolds. He started having a lot of lower back pain in his early 20s. Then he started to lose mobility. Walking hurt, standing hurt, singing hurt. But there was no injury, so what was going on? He went to a series of doctors over the course of a year, all of whom didn't have an answer. Finally, though, he saw a rheumatologist, and he came back with the diagnosis of ankylosing spondylitis. He'd never heard of such a thing, and he knew from the beginning that he was going to fight it. Dan is now being treated with exercise, diet, and medication. And he's very active when it comes to raising awareness and money. If you go to the website, amonsterpaininthees.com, you will find all kinds of information about ankylosing spondylitis. This is Dan deeply involved in the community of AS patients. He's also working with Novartis, the pharma company, to develop treatments. I quote Dan, This is something I'm going to live with for the rest of my life because there is no current cure. But I can live relatively pain-free now because of my treatment plan. It can allow a person to live a full life and do all the things they want. Here's another disease that's quite rare, Marfan syndrome. It's a genetic disorder that affects the body's connective tissues. Someone with Marfan tends to be tall, thin, with long arms, legs, fingers, and toes. Their joints are usually far more flexible than usual. There can also be problems with the eyes, lungs, heart, bones, and the spinal cord. There is no cure. Bradford Cox is the lead singer of an indie band called Deer Hunter. He's about 6'4 and quite thin. Joey Ramone was even taller at 6'6". He also had Marfans. Plus, he had a very bad case of obsessive-compulsive disorder. At its worst, he had a hard time leaving his apartment because he was compelled to go back and check that he turned off the stove or locked the door. Even stepping off a curb on the street was hard because he sometimes had to make the motion multiple times before that itch was scratched. And this OCD indirectly led to his death. Joey had already been diagnosed with lymphoma which was one of the best-kept secrets in music. After a doctor's appointment in December 2000, he had this nagging feeling that he hadn't closed the door to his doctor's office properly. Even after he got home, he couldn't shake it. So, he had to leave his apartment again. That's when he slipped on some ice, fell, and broke his hip. That required surgery. That required he not take his chemo drugs. That led to further complications, and he died on April 15th, 2001. And there's more to Joey's health story. When he was younger, he had some kind of psychotic break, which resulted in hospitalization. And now that you know all that, it kind of makes sense that so many Ramon songs had to do with the brain and psychiatry and shock treatments and sedation and lobotomies. Next, I have the story of Tom Sonny Green. He's the drummer for the British band Alt-J, and he has to deal with something called Alport syndrome. This is a rare genetic condition that starts by affecting the kidneys. Some develop high levels of protein in their urine, and the kidney function suffers, 
resulting in end-stage renal disease. If that wasn't bad enough, other symptoms include hearing loss related to some abnormalities in the inner ear. And the eyes can be affected too, resulting in extreme sensitivity to light. Tom lost about 80% of his hearing by the time he was six, so he's pretty much a lifelong wearer of hearing aids. He had a kidney transplant in 2008, which saved his life. He's been on dialysis since he was 19. And he's on a ton of different medications that are vital to keeping him upright and alive. This explains his solo album, High Anxiety, which deals with all the anxiety this hearing loss and kidney failure has caused him over the course of his life. And COVID has made life very tough. Having Ulport syndrome classifies him as being extremely vulnerable to COVID, so he's had to be vigilant about staying healthy. With someone else's kidney, he has to take immunosuppressant drugs. Even though he's been careful, he still had a very bad case of COVID in the summer of 2021. He was in hospital for a week and was wiped out for four months. Like many of the other people on this program, he's not shy about talking about his health challenges because he wants other sufferers to know that they're not alone and that there are support groups. Tom does work with groups like the Alport Syndrome Foundation in America. Now that you know about Tom's hearing loss, that may give you a slightly different perspective on his drumming style. We're going to pause here to remember Joe C., a one-time member of Kid Rock's entourage. He was the little guy, Kid Rock's hype man, who stood at three foot nine. He was a dwarf who suffered from multiple medical issues. He needed dialysis daily for his failed kidneys. Other issues required him taking up to 65 pills a day. He also suffered from celiac disease, which is an autoimmune disorder that affects mostly the small intestine and creates an intolerance to gluten. That means no wheat, no barley, no rye, or anything related to those foods. And that's what killed him on November 6, 2000, at the age of 26, complications of celiac disease. He was visiting his parents, and he died in his sleep. And then we have Kurt Cobain and his infamous stomach issues. He suffered from terrible pain for six solid years before his death and went to several doctors looking for help. He had a couple of very invasive procedures, but no one really came up with a definitive diagnosis. It might have been a pinched nerve in his back related to his scoliosis. It might have been irritable bowel syndrome, but there were some inconsistencies with the symptoms. It may have been Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, although neither showed up in colonoscopies. Some people postulate about celiac. Then there's something called bile malabsorption, which really wasn't well understood back in the early 90s. That theory actually has some legs because a medication called Prilosec seemed to help a bit. It's a heartburn medication. Or it might have had something to do with his terrible diet, anxiety, intense lifestyle, and heroin addiction. Whatever it was, he made it clear in his suicide note that his stomach pain was tearing him apart. One of his symptoms was chronic diarrhea, and he was always taking an over-the-counter med called Imodium. He first discovered this relief back in 1989 when Nirvana was on tour with a band called Tad, and the singer Tad Doyle had some Imodium with him all the time because he was having problems. Kurt was impressed enough to write a song called Imodium, but when it came time to record the Nevermind album, the title was changed to Breed, just in case any lawyers got upset. Girl, you have, you 
More stories of musicians battling disease coming up. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We don't think of polio as much of a factor these days, although it does appear to be making something of a comeback in certain areas. In the 1950s, though, it was the COVID of its day, and it was extra scary because children seemed to be the most susceptible. Several well-known musicians caught it. Neil Young was diagnosed with polio in 1951 at the age of five. He was admitted to the hospital for sick children in Toronto for a while. He mostly recovered, although he was left with a slight limp on his left side. Joni Mitchell caught polio in 1951 when she was nine. Her spine got all twisted up and she couldn't walk. She was in hospital for weeks and bedridden for months at a time afterwards. She pushed herself to walk again because she didn't want to miss Christmas. The polio left her with some mobility problems in her left hand. And this actually turned out to be something of a blessing because it forced her to form chords in innovative and interesting ways. There are whole websites dedicated to Jody's technique created by her polio. At age 51, it all came roaring back as post-polio syndrome, which affects up to 40% of patients decades after they thought they'd recovered. Joni has also suffered from Morgellons disease, a rare condition that sees fibers appearing under the skin. That almost stopped her from recording and performing several times. And then, in 2015, she had a brain aneurysm that saw her lose her ability to sing, play guitar, and walk. Fortunately, though, she's been able to relearn most of those skills. And then there's English singer Ian Drury. He contracted polio at the age of seven in 1949, probably from a public swimming pool. He spent a year and a half in hospital. He ended up with paralysis on his left side, with his shoulder, arm, and leg withering. But that didn't stop him from pursuing a musical career in the punk era. Here's one of the best-known songs with Ian Jury and the Blockheads. It's from 1977. Sex and drugs and rock and roll is very good indeed. Every bit of clothing ought to make you pretty. You can cut the clothing. Grey is such a pity. I should wear the clothing of Mr. Ian Jury and the Blockheads from the summer of 1977. His health problems continued for the rest of his life. He was diagnosed with colorectal cancer in 1996. It eventually metastasized, and he died on March 27, 2000, at the age of 57. While we're here, we might as well talk about cancer. Billy Zoom, the guitarist with pioneering L.A. punk band X, was diagnosed with prostate cancer in 2010. It was caught early, and he's been all clear. Bruce Dickinson of Iron Maiden was diagnosed with throat cancer in 2015. He caught it early, and all the treatments were successful. Paul Bonehead Arthurs, guitarist with Oasis, was told he had tonsil cancer in April of 2022. He got treatment, and now he's fine. David Bowie was taken away from us by liver cancer. After fighting it for 18 months, he went for a nap on a Sunday afternoon in January 2016 and died. And then there's the insidious glioblastoma, a very aggressive and uncurable form of brain cancer that's taken the lives of so many people. Senator John McCain, Bo Biden, the son of President Joe Biden, actors Tim Conway and Robert Forster. On the music side of things, we can't be sure, but it is possible that Mozart died of glioblastoma. 
George Gershwin may have had it. Robert Moog, the inventor of the modern synthesizer. Hardy Fox, co-founder of The Residence. Neil Peart of Rush survived for three and a half years with his case of glioblastoma. He felt that something was wrong in June of 2016, less than a year after Rush called it quits. And the first thing he noticed was that he was suddenly having a hard time completing the New York Times crossword puzzle. Then, a couple of months later, he started having issues with words. There was an MRI which confirmed things. There was surgery. And when the diagnosis came back, doctors gave him 18 months. There was a short period of remission, but then it all came back. He lasted twice that expected 18 months before dying on January 7th, 2020, keeping everything totally private until the end. And then, of course, there's the case of Gord Downey. In December 2015, shortly after attending his father's funeral, Gord was walking down the street in Kingston, Ontario, when he had a seizure. Surgery was required, which involved removing the affected parts of his brain. Then came six weeks of chemo, and after that, weeks of rehab. Gord was able to carry on through a final Tragically Hip tour and work on his Secret Path project, and there were some solo recordings. Few people with glioblastoma make it to five years. Gore died on October 17, 2017, at the age of 53, just a few weeks shy of the second anniversary of that first seizure. The best tweet I saw that day was, Canada closed, death in the family. Before we move on, let's have a happy cancer outcome. On June 23, 2021, Blink-182's Mark Hoppus made a mistake. He was in the hospital receiving chemo treatment for something called B-cell lymphoma stage 4A, a form of blood cancer that had also affected his mom. It was a picture of him in the chemo unit with a caption, Yes, hello, one cancer treatment, please. That Instagram post was supposed to go out to a circle of close friends and no one else, but instead... It went out to everyone, and that's how we found out. The diagnosis had come in the spring of 2021. He thought he had some kind of weird knot in his shoulder and went to the doctor to have it checked out. Just a little while later, right when he was walking into an office to meet his therapist, his cell phone rang. It was his doctor with the news, and that's how the therapy session began. Hi, yes, I just got a call, and I found out I have cancer. The good news is that the cancer was very treatable, and after undergoing chemo, Mark has been declared cancer-free, just like his mom eventually was. Let's move on to some other musicians and afflictions. One of the most intimidating things about Johnny Lydon of the Sex Pistols and Public Image is his stare. That's the result of a terrible case of spinal meningitis that he contracted when he was seven. Spinal meningitis involves inflammation around the membranes of the brain and the spinal cord. Johnny spent an entire year at St. Anne's Hospital in London. During that time, he was nauseous, had headaches, slipped into a coma now and again, and suffered from hallucinations. He had to endure painful spinal taps, and he missed more than a year of school. Even after he was discharged, he had memory loss that lasted for about four years. He couldn't remember his name or the name of his mom and dad. He didn't remember anything, in fact. He later realized that this ordeal forced him to completely rebuild himself. 
He was also left with a permanent curvature of the spine and that stare and the possibility that his eyesight will deteriorate into nothingness. Here's Johnny talking about that during an interview on the release of one of his books. This is a, this, it just back goes back to meningitis. You lose your memory. You're in a coma for such a long time. You're in hospital for, for a year. You come out, you don't remember anybody or anything. You don't know who these strangers are that, that take you away. You've become a, a sort of, a, for me, institutionalised. I was uh, feeling uh, kind of safe in a very cold, hostile environment called a hospital. That, for me, was my comfort. They pushed me and took me outside of that, so I had to fight for the right to find out who I was. So in many ways, meningitis, I've got to tell you, was God's greatest gift to me because it made me have to find out who I really was rather than settle for the car thief I could have grown up to being quite naturally. This is important. It's like I've got that gift now of being able to look at myself outside of myself. And that don't make me bipolar. And that's because you had to learn about yourself. So you basically you got you got meningitis. You at find seven. out who you are, and then you and then you look back, and when the memories start flooding back, and you go, "Oh my god, oh, ooh, have, have I let myself down? Have I done anything wrong?" And the guilt for not remembering your own parents and what they've done for you. Never get over that. Never, ever, ever. And I hope you hear it in the songs that this is. You know, this is pill pistols. They're full and flooded with that. And that's, that's not me being selfish, but if I've got the gift of uh, making music, well, then it's going to have to be an accurate portrayal. A few more stories of musicians and their disease struggles right after this. If you ask Johnny Lydon about the importance of memories, he will go back to his story of the memory loss he suffered as a kid when fighting spinal meningitis. He will also tell you about his wife Nora, who he's caring for, as she deals with Alzheimer's. He can really emphasize what she's going through. She, and Johnny calls her Babby, needs around-the-clock care, and Johnny has taken that on. He, no doubt, would have sympathy for John Mann, the singer for Spirit of the West. In 2014, when he was just in his early 50s, and when he was in remission after a bout of colorectal cancer that had been diagnosed in 2009, John was diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's. This is an uncommon form of the disease, hitting people before the age of 65. It accounts for less than 10% of all cases. Once he got the diagnosis, he realized that he'd been having on-and-off memory issues as early as 2001, when he couldn't remember lyrics or what chords he was supposed to play on the guitar. The memory situation got worse during chemo between 2009 and 2011, but he shrugged that off as being a side effect of the treatment. But it wasn't. From 2014 forward, he did his best to soldier on. John performed for as long as he could, using an iPad to remind him of the lyrics. There were fundraisers for stem cell treatments. There were tributes and special concerts. His wife, playwright Jilly Dumb, produced a play called Forget About Tomorrow, which dealt with John's struggles. A Vancouver brewery created a special pilsner to help with John's medical costs. Alzheimer's is a cruel thing, and John died on November 20th, 2019. But before he passed away, 
He did so much to raise awareness for people suffering just like him. Spirit of the West, featuring John Mann, a victim of early-onset Alzheimer's. Something similar destroyed the life of ACDC rhythm guitarist Malcolm Young. First, it was lung cancer, then it was heart problems that required a pacemaker. But by April 2014, his cognitive issues were so bad that he couldn't perform anymore. He died of complications resulting from dementia on November 18, 2017, at the age of 64. I have a list of other artists with various health problems. Florence Welch of Florence and the Machine has had to deal with dyspraxia, a condition that affects your movement and coordination. She's embraced the condition, saying that it helps her be creative in different ways. Florence has also been involved with dyspraxia organizations, including those who help kids. Ben Watts of the British band Everything But The Girl has Trug-Strauss syndrome, a disease that causes inflammation of the blood vessels. This often starts with asthma and then moves throughout the body. In severe cases, organs can be damaged. There's no cure, but steroids and immunosuppressant drugs can be helpful. Ben was first hospitalized in 1992 and wrote a memoir about his experiences called Patient. He lost his voice and a big chunk of his intestine. He only has about 20% of his digestive system left. Phil Collins hasn't been well for years. Everything started in 2009 during a gig when he injured a vertebrae in the upper part of his neck, a dislocation of some kind. And that led to all kinds of nerve damage that affected his hands. Even after an operation on his neck, he still doesn't have full function in his hands. He couldn't hold on to drumsticks unless they were taped to his hands. And playing the piano? Forget it. It got so bad that in 2010, he contemplated suicide. There was also back surgery and a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. He needed treatment in a hyperbaric chamber to treat an infective diabetic abscess on his foot. He needs a cane and sometimes resorts to a wheelchair because of continuing problems with his back and hips. On the very last Genesis tour, he performed the entire time sitting down with his son Nick taking over on drums. And now is the time that we talk about COVID. A lot of musicians did not make it. Here are just a few who died as a result of COVID-19. David Greenfield, the keyboardist for The Stranglers. Grammy winner John Prine. Alan Merrill, who wrote the song I Love Rock and Roll. And it appears that Andy Gill, a founding member of Gang of Four, died of the coronavirus. And then there was Adam Schlesinger, leader of Fountains of Wayne. He contracted COVID early in the pandemic, and it got bad real quick and he was hospitalized. His condition deteriorated and he was put on a ventilator. But after just a week, he died on April 1st, 2020. This was Adam and Fountains of Wayne's biggest hit from 2003. It's Stacy's Mom. Fountains of Wayne, featuring Adam Schlesinger, who died of COVID-19 early in the pandemic. Since then, there have been hundreds, probably thousands of musicians who have contracted COVID. But because of vaccines and mutations and luck and proper treatment, they didn't die. However, not all of them skated completely free. Take Dave Navarro of Jane's Addiction. He caught COVID in late 2021, and although he got through the worst of it, he's become a sufferer of long covid Symptoms lingered for months and months and months. And when Jane's Addiction announced a tour with the Smashing Pumpkins for late 2022, Dave had to bow out. 
too fatigued, too weak for a 32-day tour. We tend to think of musicians as different than us. They have these musical superpowers that allow them to do things we never could. But in the end, they're just flesh and blood like the rest of us and subject to the frailties as anyone. Two more examples. Andy Taylor, bass player and original member of Duran Duran, revealed in November 2022 that he has stage four prostate cancer and wasn't able to make it to the band's induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And then there's Mimi Parker, singer and drummer with the beloved indie band Low. She died of ovarian cancer on November 5th, 2022, at the age of 55. This program just dealt with physical problems. Sometime in the future, we'll look at the issue of musicians and mental health. If you missed part one of this two-parter, it's available as a podcast wherever you get yours. In fact, there were literally hundreds of ongoing history podcasts available for free. Just grab as many as you like. If you're looking for music news and information, there's my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every day. And it comes with a free seven days a week newsletter, so you never miss a thing. You can also look for me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even TikTok. And you're invited to email me anytime about anything at all. I'm at alan at alancross.ca. Stay healthy, or at least do the best you can. Technical production is by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.